0: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Welcome to Cato. I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, and it is my honor and privilege today to chair this discussion of ideologies and freedom. We live in a liberal country in a liberal world, and liberalism has brought us not just liberty, but prosperity that was unimaginable in earlier generations. Yet around the world, we see rising challenges to liberalism, socialism, populism, authoritarianism, ethnic nationalism. And so the question arises, where do these bad ideas come from? Why do they persist in the face of failure? Juliana Geron Pilon thinks they have a common root. Dr. Pilon is a senior fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. She has taught at several colleges and universities, including the National Defense University, American University, George Washington, and Johns Hopkins, and also spent time at the International Foundation for Electoral Systems and the Institute of World Politics. She is the author of seven books, which is a reproach to everyone at Cato except Ed Galen Carpenter, And, of course, today she is here to discuss her latest book, The Utopian Utopian Conceit and the War on Freedom. Uh, Commenting today, after Juliana finishes, will be Jeremy Rabkin, who is a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School of George Mason University. Um, before that, he was, for over two decades, a professor of government at Cornell University, and he also serves on the board of directors of the U.S. Institute for, uh, of Peace. Professor Rabkin's books include Law Without Nations and The Case for Sovereignty. Juliana?
1: Thank you. I think I'll come here so that uh, the view is not obstructed for some of you. And I have written my remarks because I don't want to go over my time. And I want to hear what Jeremy has what to say. What is our time? What is our time? Well, I'm going to talk for about 20, 25 minutes. That sounds fine. That's, yeah. And, uh, and you can take the rest. Well, I want to thank all of you who have slept over here from uh, wherever outside Cato and those of you at Cato who have come to listen to me. It's a great pleasure to see many of you whom I know in the audience, and those I don't, and perhaps will. It is also a profound honor for me to speak to you from an auditorium that bears the name of F.A. Hayek, whom I had the privilege of meeting in the late 1970s, a man of remarkable humility with a profound respect for reality, he denounced The Fatal Conceit, the title of his last book, whose subtitle is The Errors of Socialism. Published in 1988 by my alma mater, University of Chicago, the book is predicated on the proposition that centrally controlled economies. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's better?
0: Yes. I think it will be.
1: Okay. can never succeed because presuming to know all the relevant facts that go into the myriad market decisions made by individuals pursuing their various interests is delusional. Designing a putatively ideal society, even with the best intentions, is logically impossible. Reason must recognize its limitations, writes Hayek, and face the implications of the astonishing fact revealed by economics and biology that order generated without design can far outstrip plans men consciously contrive. The central planners' claims of omniscience, however, are just as hollow as their equally hubristic pretense of moral superiority. For as Hayek rightly observes, the deliberate organization of society for a definite goal is indeed a normative, value-laden enterprise. But contrary to its arrogant claims, adopting socialist morality would destroy much of present humankind and impoverish much of the rest. Not that Hayek has any quarrel with the ideal of greatest prosperity for the greatest number, nor does he advocate a caricaturized form of capitalism synonymous with ruthless cutthroat egoism. What he does propose is an extended order of human cooperation, which corresponds to Adam Smith's system of natural liberty, and what Milton Friedman called just plain freedom. What all three of them opposed is the notion that an elite vanguard, should presume to consciously construct and then impose putatively optimal institutions and policies with little or no regard to voluntary individual choice. But isn't deciding for others the ultimate audacity, the wish to emulate God? These wannabe philosopher kings and queens are in effect modern-day architects of Babel. You have all heard that of that legendary tower mentioned in chapter 9, verse 11 of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. Yes, 9, 11,01. sorry, I couldn't resist. Thinking themselves capable of reaching the metaphorical and literal heaven, those architects were what would later be called utopians. The term, of course, was coined by Thomas More in 1515. The expression itself, Utopians of Babel, was actually coined by Frank S. Meyer, who in his influential book, The Concept of Freedom, defended liberty above all on moral grounds before, because he believed quite simply that to be truly human, we must be free. Coercion is wrong, and virtue is predicated on freedom. By the way, proving that that intelligence and brilliance, indeed, is at least on occasion hereditary. Frank's son is a chess champion, better known to many of you in the audience, for his day job as president of the Federalist Society, Gene Meyer. As it happens, the concept of freedom was published the same year that I emigrated to the United States with my family. I was 15, but my parents had been trying to leave the workers' paradise of Romania for nearly 17 years. The year was 1962. We had been allowed to bring only what fit inside a small suitcase, nothing in writing, a few photos, and no money. I admit that I was worried. For one thing, among the six of us, only my father could speak English. But I was hopeful, even exhilarated, because we were going to fight freedom, whatever that meant. I wasn't entirely sure, but it didn't take long for me to figure it out. As soon as I heard all the complaining and the relentless condemnation of the government, which back in Romania would have meant jail or worse. However, grasping the historical and intellectual framework, which not only tolerated but encouraged dissent, took a little longer. Which brings me back to Frank Meyer. It turned out that he and I had more in common than Judaism. We had both been communists in our youth. But while I had been a child and had no choice, Meyer encountered Marx in college at Oxford, where he joined the Communist Party willingly, if secretly, in 1932. I had been luckier, because nothing inoculates you against socialism more categorically than living it. Meyer's epiphany came only during World War II while serving with the US Army by reading Hayek's magnum opus, The Road to Serfdom. It took another decade to liberate his mind from the seductive allure of ideology. In 1955, he joined the staff of National Review, then newly established. By then, he had become convinced that The nature of men, firmly rooted in their creation, belies the constructions of the utopians. Rather, the natural habitat of man is freedom and piety toward the constitution of being, not subservience to a man-made utopian plan. But we humans are a paradoxical species. We want to be free to make our own choices, yet choice implies uncertainty and the possibility of error. Every generation forgets anew the lesson of the first couple who, after daring to taste from the tree of knowledge, had their visas in paradise canceled. God knew, he does know everything after all, that having become aware of their own mortality and having tasted perfect bliss and harmony, humans would yearn for the fruit of the tree of life. That was not to be. But being reconciled to the human condition is exceedingly difficult. The avoidance of strife and pain, a utopian yearning for heaven on earth, peace, prosperity, and this is very important, Equality, where everyone speaks the same language and thinks correctly along the same lines, seems unquenchable, especially for some people. Differences of opinion are especially hard to stomach for those who believe themselves superior in knowledge, wisdom, and virtue, a self-styled vanguard, selflessly devoted to helping their fellow humans by their own account. Yet ultimately, whether consciously or not, the impetus behind such a putatively and not necessarily disingenuous humanist impulse is an age-old craving for immortality through fame, power, and riches. Thus, Meyer considered the myth of Babel emblematic, setting it against the historical record of the pharaoh Akhenaten who attempted to reconstruct Egyptian society in a single generation. The myth, quote, from from Meyer, has been endemic as an underground aspect of Western thought, appearing now and again in the utopianism and millenarianism of some medieval heresies. Every revolutionary movement of the last two centuries, however much it may have begun, by radical criticism of the state it found in being, ends by deifying the state it has captured and theologizing the concept of the state. Each in its own way has contributed to that immense growth in the power of the state, which is the effective condition of totalitarianism. He then concludes, The dominant ideologies of the 20th century are the latest forms taken by this utopian attitude. Ditto for the 21st. Were Meyer alive today, he would obviously add post-Cold War communism, along with progressivism and apocalyptic ecologism, and most certainly Salafi jihadism, the hate-filled ideology that gave rise to Al-Qaeda. The multimorphic global jihad responsible for 9-11, which continues to threaten civilization while changing tactics and affiliations, has appropriated the lessons of millenarian utopianism and takes full advantage of its resonance in today's culture. Middle East expert Michael W.S. Ryan, for example, writes that, for Al-Qaeda, Islam is revolution not just in the sense of an insurgency, but an ideological and political sense as well. He cites Al-Qaeda strategist Abu Ubaid al-Qurashi's summons to holy war against the West. Engaging in a sustained, well-organized, long-term struggle must be based on classical guerrilla warfare, writes al-Qurashi. Finding inspiration in Mao Tse Tung, who in his writings about the Revolutionary War focused on the fundamental relationships between war and politics. Just as Mao had been driven by hubris to control the fate of his own countrymen, no matter what the cost in lives and suffering, So his jihadist disciples, convinced of their quasi-divine superiority, now target so-called infidels. Meyer was by no means unique in detecting an underlying utopian and millenarian thread in revolutionary movements of the modern era. Richard Landis, founder of Boston University Center for Millennial Studies, and incidentally, a friend of Jeremy's and mine, credits his mentor Arthur Mendel, Meyer's contemporary, with, quote, tracing the path from apocalypse and God to the secular versions of millennial ideologies, the new products of the modern world. Apocalypse and reason, history, nature, secular revolution, often violently anti-religious, represents not an abandonment of millennialism, but a change of clothing that jettisons the embarrassing commitment to a god who never kept the promises that the prophets attributed to him. God having been dropped from the equation, agency shifted almost entirely to man. Isn't it paradoxical that even jihadists who presume to kill for Allah, in effect, however vehemently they deny it, usurp the divine mantle for themselves. They are as guilty of the utopianist conceit as the most ardent megalomaniacal atheist. These bedfellows share the dream of a perfect world according to a blueprint they mean to impose at any price. While Hayek unlike Meyer and Mendel, did not focus on the millenarian aspects of utopianism, I believe it helps explain his own insight in the road to serfdom that German anti-Semitism and anti-capitalism come from the same root, adding that it would be a mistake to believe that the specific German rather than the socialist element produced totalitarianism. He then supports his claim with the observation that in Germany and Austria, the Jew had come to be regarded as the representative of capitalism because a traditional dislike of large classes of population for commercial pursuits had left these more readily accessible to a group that was practically excluded from the more highly esteemed occupations. He's absolutely correct, but his sociological observation neglects the underlying and crucial facet of the utopianist conceit, which accounts for its ultimately violent nature, the need for an apocalyptic enemy, an antichrist by any other name. The biblical story of Babel, of course, is described in the Book of Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse or the Book of John. Here's the general outline. A false devil posing as a Messiah captures power only to cause enormous suffering. A great conflagration follows, a fire to end all fires, before the devil Antichrist is slain, and the Last last Judgment inaugurates the perfect end of time. While pivotal to Christianity, the earliest known version of the story actually appears in the Old Testament book of Daniel, composed in the second century BCE. In the Jewish tradition, the Messiah will arrive at the end of a thousand days, a metaphorical millennium, to destroy the evil that had infected the whole world, finally bringing bliss on earth forevermore. Over the course of the ensuing two centuries, self-styled secular messiahs would adapt revolutionary millenarianism to create a blueprint for a heaven on earth allegedly fated to follow once a cataclysmic Armageddon liquidates evil, writes Mendel. Whether explicitly religious, as were the medieval and early modern messianic movements, or implicitly so, as were their secular revolutionary successors, all apocalyptic movements thereafter mirrored the original model. So while Hayek is right that the Jew came to be regarded as a symbol of capitalism in Germany and Austria, the stigma of usury was but one of many fantasies that had plagued Jews for centuries, of which the most outrageous was the accusation of using children Christian children's blood to make the Passover matzahs. With the advent of modernity, anti-Judaism took on a more secular tint. By the turn of the 19th century, a distinct anti-Jewish, anti-capitalist paradigm had emerged, described by the Italian historian Michele Battini as constructed on arguments of hostility toward the new market economy and the expression of the reaction by a part of society to the market associated with finance and finance with the Jews. Usury no longer referred only to money lending, but applied to banking and financial activities generally. In his 1806 pamphlet on the Jews, Sur les Juifs, for example, Louis de Bonal blamed the dire straits of peasants in his home region of Alsace on lenders, whom he identified as Jews no matter what their religious convictions. As such, writes Battini, Sur les Juifs is a paradigmatic document of anti Jewish, anti capitalism, and of a traditional defense of rural society from the free market which was taken up again and reformulated throughout the century. Ironically, however, the ultimate reformulation of Jewish capitalist came from a descendant of distinguished rabbis by the name of Karl Marx. In his 1844 essay, ominously titled On the Jewish Question, Marx wrote, the bill of exchange is the real god of the Jew. One society has succeeded in abolishing the empirical essence of Judaism, huckstering and its preconditions. He means private property and money. The Jew will have become impossible because his consciousness no longer has an object, because the subjective basis of Judaism, practical need, has been humanized. Under communism, of course, practical need and greed will disappear altogether. With a bill of exchange and money, there being no private property to cause that subjective basis. No property, no Judaism, no selfishness, it's the recipe for peace on earth. Men will become angels, and have I got a bridge in Brooklyn for you at a major discount. In my book, I explain how Marx led to both Hitler and Stalin, and how both contributed to the ideological honing of Islamist radicalism, for which anti-capitalism, specifically anti-Americanism, and anti-Zionism, the new anti-Semitism, together constitute the bicephalic Satan. This is how the distinguished historian of anti-Semitism, Robert Wistrich, describes that affinity. Contemporary Marxists and Islamists share a curiously similar apocalyptic agenda of earthly redemption that aspires to the installment of absolute social justice through violent means. For both, Palestinian martyrdom has become a glowing symbol of resistance not only to Israel, but also to globalization and the corrupt West. At the heart of such radical utopianism, there's the quasi-religious belief that the world would only have to be liberated, will only be liberated by the downfall of America and the defeat of the Jews. This millenarian fantasy has today emerged as a notable point of fusion between the radical anti-Zionist left in the West and the global jihad. End of quote. It should come as no surprise that today the most radical members of the U.S. Congress are both anti-capitalist and anti-Semitic. Wistrich explains that the success of tiny Israel as a thriving Western-style democracy and high-tech economy in an ocean of brutal Arab dictatorships has plainly been intolerable to the radical left. Arab socialism produced only a grim blacklist of despicable tyrannies. No wonder its ideological disciples are enraged. It provides sufficient justification for supporting, quote, the pro-Palestinian narrative that Israel is solely to blame for the continuing conflict in the Middle East, concludes Wistrich. Anti-Zionism serves here as an ersatz substitute religion as well as a magnet for all the post-1989 Marxist debris. Calling it debris is not to minimize its importance and danger. The war on freedom continues, and as long as humans will be human, it always will. To conclude, I could do no better than to cite that giant little economist, Milton Friedman. The battle for freedom must be won over and over again. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our turn to take up arms. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Juliana. Now we'll hear from Jeremy Rabkin. Oh, stand
1: up yeah, because you can, not everybody can see.
2: Well, first I wanna say that um, I very much enjoyed the book um as Juliana mentioned, we, we share some friends, some personal friends, um, but also a lot of historical enemies. Everything that she's against, I'm against. So <laughs> I enjoyed flipping through the, yeah, that was bad too. Uh, and I should apologize to Juliana and to the audience. I wasn't really paying attention and I allowed myself to be signed up to get an um, uh, inoculation this morning. Um, and afterwards they, they give me this little, you know. Yeah, I, I got an injection this morning, a vaccine against pneumonia, and after I got the shot, they give me this little form, and it says, uh, well, some people have reaction that's feverish. Uh, other people have high fever. Other people feel paralysis. They go their whole list of things. Most people, they say. you might want to just... Move the podium up a little, if it'll do that. Maybe it won't. Let's just aim that up. Most people, they say, just are sulky and irritable. So here I am.
1: (laughs) Excuses, excuses.
2: (laughs) Um, So it's fun. The book is fun. And I say that respectfully, because if a book is not fun, it's hard to get through it. So it's fun. I'm a little dubious about the rhetorical strategy. And the rhetorical strategy is uh, everything that we're against is kind of the same. And you can pile them all up. And it begins with Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. Or is it chapter 11, verse 9? Anyway, the Tower of Babel. There's There's the danger of human overreaching and... Biblical religion warned us about it. So we, the book seems to be saying um, secularism, communism, fascism, environmentalism, they're all kind of the same. And we've been warned about this. And um, I, that I, I get it. There's something to that. But I think that... It's a little bit rhetorical. <laughs> and so I'll uh, just make uh, three points. The first is, um, yes, secularism has fueled really noxious, terrible ideologies in the last two centuries, and that's we should notice that and be warned about that. Religion can be extreme, too. Just to remind yourself. Uh, At the beginning of what we now call liberalism, classical liberalism, uh, Hobbes and Locke and Hume, they all have these very elaborate epistemological teachings, and I think all scholars take that as a warning against fanatical belief. And particularly fanatical religious belief, because after all, um, certainly Hobbes and Locke in the 17th century they lived through or recently um, heard about her in their it was recent still in their lifetime uh, the Thirty Years' War between Protestants and Catholics in Europe and and the war be, the civil war in England between let's say nominal Protestants and more extreme Protestants. Uh, so they were very aware of religious strife as something threatening and scary. So you're going to have a lot of violence without having secularism. Uh, there's a long history of Christian fanaticism, even before the Reformation, even before the polarizing impact of the Reformation. Just to give one famous example, in the 13th century, there is a crusade, and it was called a crusade, and it was preached by a succession of popes against the Albigensian heresy, in uh, mostly in the south of France. Tens of thousands of people were slaughtered, and not just fighters, but women and children. Um, Raphael Lemkin, who was the guy who coined the phrase uh, after the Second World War, genocide, um, he said, yes, that crusade in the 13th century against this particular Christian heresy, that's the first example of religion-based genocide. So extreme, terrible things have been done in the name of religion. We all kind of know this. Juliana knows it too. But you kind of slide past that in the book if you just want to think, yes, 20th century ideologies are this thing that comes from hubris, which religion held in check. Maybe it held that in check, but it also egged on people in other bad ways. Jihadis, she goes through a lot of trouble to say, and it's quite interesting, the history of this, the Muslim Brotherhood, there really is a connection there. I mean, the people who started the Muslim Brotherhood, only in the early 20th century seem to have been very influenced by Leninism and then by National Socialism or Fascism. They they were inspired by that. So that's really an interesting fact. But it's not true that, well, before that, Islam was the religion of peace. That's just what politicians say. Um, Islam has as much as Christianity, maybe even a little more, um, history of extreme uh, brutality, which is rooted in a certain kind of fanaticism. So it's not true that Religious people respect human limits, and on the other side are people who are hubristic and out of control crazy. So that's one way in which I think the the way she's setting it up is a little bit rhetorical and misleading. Uh, The second thing is if you're concerned about utopian ideologies, so forget about whether it's secular, but if it's utopian, that's really the dangerous thing. We should just remind ourselves that um, liberalism has looked utopian many previous generations. Um, Universal suffrage was such a provocative idea, such a questionable idea, that the American founders, those people whose pictures are on the wall out there, like George Mason, uh, James Madison, they didn't dare to put that in the Constitution. They were very hesitant about this. Each state will decide who gets to vote because, right? They thought and this is apart from the problem of slavery. They just you well, know, people who have no money will be easily influenced to vote by people who buy their votes. They, they were they they still thought in the eight, in the late 18th century that universal suffrage was maybe utopian. Um, there are people who scoff at it today, and I'm not mentioning this to scold those people. Like, oh, you expect to have a Jeffersonian democracy in Iraq? And they all say that as if. You can only have a Jeffersonian democracy in America, which we still have. Okay, not completely, sort of. I mean, I, I'm, can I have a democracy in Iraq? So far, the answer is yes. It's not fun. It's not real effective. They are still voting and electing people, so that's interesting. But it just it reminds you know, people have a reasonable skepticism that universal suffrage maybe is a little optimistic for many parts of the world. okay, so that was liberalism, and it came to be, for the most part, in most Western countries. Complete religious toleration. Should you have religious toleration even for uh, religious teachings that are antithetical to uh, political authority, liberal tolerant authority? John Locke said no. A number of the American founders, like John Jay, said no. Uh, It's a plausible argument. There are people in Europe today who say the Muslim Brotherhood, no. Uh, Maybe it is utopian what is now our current position in America, no limits on religious toleration, at least with regard to preaching. Is that utopian? I don't know. But I think most people in America now think it's, well, yes, necessary and unavoidable. That's where we are. Um, Things that had seemed utopian came to seem okay. Uh, Cities with tens of thousands of people, or just 10,000 packed together, Thomas Jefferson said, we know from history they will be sewers of crime, debauchery, violence, riot. That was very plausible. That was right if you looked at Paris. That was very plausible if you looked at London. Uh, We now have, I don't know, 8 million people in New York City. Um, I was there just a few days ago. It's pretty nice, actually. Uh, It's too crowded, uh, it's too expensive, it doesn't feel unsafe, and in fact, the crime rate is much lower in New York than it is in most other cities, so go figure. We don't know confidently what is utopian, or people reasonably disagree on what can be achieved. The third point I wanted to make, extremist ideology, Okay, Let's not talk about utopian. Let's not talk about secular. Let's just talk about extremist. But even if you come to that and say, really, Juliana's point is she was just having rhetorical flourishes, talking about utopian or talking about secular. It's just extremist. There are a lot of threats to liberty in the world today which are not obviously extremist. I would say the biggest threat to liberty come from uh, Moscow and Beijing. And the overlords, Mr. Putin there in Moscow and Mr. Xi in Beijing. They're not extremist. They're certainly not utopian. What they are actually preaching is the West is decadent and we are orderly. Well, orderly is not utopian. It's not even extreme. Through most of history, people thought like orderly, yes, that'd be good. Let's have orderly. Uh, and Mr. Putin is very explicit. Uh, we respect religion, they don't in the West. Well, that's not extreme, that's traditional. Um, we are not enthused about gay rights the way they are in the West. That's one of Putin's themes. Uh, most of what he says is, um, we are old fashioned and people in the West are kind of crazy. And I think our own parents and grandparents would have understood that perfectly. It's, it's, calling it extreme is not enough. I mean, there are all kinds of things going on there. There's a lot of brutality in the background. I'm not at all defending this. Just to remind you, you can be a threat to liberty without being extreme or utopian or even um, secular, and there is Putin, and you could tell a similar story about the Chinese Communist Party, which at this point is not promising paradise on Earth. It's just promising steady 5% increase year by year. Okay, some years it might be a little less. We don't want to be utopian. Uh, and we should remember that many horrible things have happened in history by, at the hands of people who were not extreme, let alone fanatical. Um, I think the most obvious example is the Atlantic slave trade in the 18th century, which was conducted by very calm, calculating merchants. They, they didn't say this was about religion. They didn't say it was going to deliver heaven on earth. They just said you can sell people at a profit if you don't take, spend too much money taking care of them on the way over and keep them alive until they can be sold. Right? Greed will motivate a lot of bad behavior without extremism or fanaticism or any of those things. Uh, Cato very rightly spends a lot of time questioning a lot of federal regulations from every one of the 14 federal departments. Hardly any of them are actually motivated by extreme fanaticism, utopian expectations. I think the majority of them anyway are motivated by somebody persuaded somebody because they would make more money that way, greed. So let me conclude. I think the political challenge for defenders of liberty is very serious, as always. totally agree with the peroration of juliana 's talk there it 's always time to be defending liberty, yes, absolutely, and she 's right that the left it likes this apocalyptic rhetoric of Our enemies are terrible. Our enemies are going to do terrible things. We all have to rally to save the Earth, or save people of color, or save women, or save whoever it is that has to be saved. Um, But really, you don't want to become like that. Uh, I think the best argument for liberty is that life offers a diversity of good things. So individuals need to sort out which of them can I best pursue, or which of them will give me the most satisfaction. And different people will have a different balance of the good things of life, and they're not all completely compatible. Uh, Liberty is always threatened by people who say there is the one thing overall which is most important, and everything must be subordinated to that, equality or preserving the environment, or halting climate change, or preserving endangered species, or protecting sexual self-expression, or whatever it is, Uh, to push back on that, it's not enough to say, and I'm not even sure it's always helpful to say, you remind me of communists. I mean, sometimes they do, fair enough. And sometimes they remind you of communists because they really are talking that way. But sometimes they're just silly, they're just distracted, they're just goofy. Uh, the Green New Deal and the people who are talking about it, I think it's wrong to say it's Marxist Leninism in a slightly different color. No, it's it's late night bull sessions of college students. I'm not saying it's innocent, but I think it is not sinister, it's just silly. Uh, and I would say in some, uh, there's really a lot, to enjoy in this book, and there's a lot to say yes to. Um, I think it doesn't help us to clarify the difference between opponents who are deluded, who we have to live with, because it's a constitutional democracy, and liberty means you have to put up with people who are a little bit goofy, and people who really are mortal enemies, and we have to be really vigilant about and on guard against and prepare to, if comes to be necessary, make real sacrifices to deal with. Because she's piling up every bad thing as another echo of all the other bad things. And I think the world is not quite as simple as that. But I I enjoyed hearing the story over the course of the book. Thank you.
0: Well, I'm not sure it's exactly encouraging to hear that there are terrible threats to liberty from sources that are neither ideological nor utopian. Uh, we've got them all across the spectrum. Um, we're going to open it up for questions. We will uh, bring a microphone around. But, Juliana, do you want to take a couple of minutes to respond?
1: Yes, please. Um, I, I am flattered by Jeremy's thinking that I am presuming far for me to be utopian about this, to uh, give an explanation. Sorry, I probably should get up. OK. <laughs> I do not by any means imply that all violence explain, is explained by utopianism, uh, nor do I use a con- the concept of utopianism in so wide a definition as to make it. Um, really practically impossible to say much of anything about anything. Uh, I can see how it might be tempting to think that I have uh, tried to explain everything on the universe because so much of what is truly evil and frightening uh, does appear to have some common structures. I really was very concerned to uh, appeal to Hayek's conception of the fatal conceit in order to limit uh, the kind of utopia that I think is especially dangerous. Violence, my God, it can come from every kind of possible, the causes of violence are, are multifaceted. Uh, violence can come from, uh, frankly, a disturbance of the brain. So by no means would I presume to offer a panacea uh, against all forms of, of violence. But the presumption to know better than someone else, for even if you have the best intentions, to also to know enough that you can make decisions for a society. Having the picture of an ideal world, of course religion has also lured people into that idea. So by no means is this secularism versus, as you see, I'm also counting the jihadists and I also in the book talk about uh, other religious forms of violence. Um, This isn't to defend myself um, exactly. Um, It's rather to explain that those of you who are expecting um, a book that will give you the answer to all our ills um, will not find it in the utopian conceit. I do think that Every side, left or right, and mind you, that was the original idea behind my writing the book, is to dispel the notion that left and right have uh, very much meaning nowadays. But throughout the political spectrum, in the West and East, and in the modern world, we find an incredible, incredible amount of arrogance that on this part of those who would demonize the other side, people who disagree with their visions, whatever their visions may be, their utopias. Whether they are just silly, as you say, some of them do appear to be, or in earnest, well-intentioned or not, they are dangerous, whether they know it or not. And that is a concern. And they are especially dangerous when they consider themselves to be in the right and the other guy is in the wrong, the antichrist by whatever other name. And so that, I think, is important to remember. And that's probably as much as I... (laughs) I can say at this moment, but I do think you should read the book.
0: (laughs) Okay, questions? Wait for a microphone.
2: Uh, Underlying your discussion was this concept of sinisterness or sinister, whatever the problem and silliness. And I'm wondering if you can...
1: <laughs>
2: Hello. There, <laughs> there you go.
1: Oh, much better.
2: The uh, The definitions of sinister, I think, need some explanation. And trying to distinguish between sinister and silly is something I'd like you to enlighten us on. <laughs> fair. Fair question. Um, so I think... There are people who are selling, I, I didn't see it, but I heard about the Democratic debates last night, and so there are 10 people on the stage, all of whom seem to be saying, elect me and I will make everything great. I'll take care of everything. And it won't cost you anything either, because I'll just like move things around and then you'll all have health care, and you'll all have this and you'll all have that. Um, I. I Wouldn't like any of them to be president, Um, but I don't think there would be mass arrests after they got into office because they have that Leninist vision of we must implement our utopia. I think they are not very serious about most of what they are saying. And I think they are not very serious because at least my sense of it is that uh, this is America and you get up and you say things and it's kind of understood that, okay, so it's maybe won't be quite as good as it sounded in my speech. Um, if we had a uh, movement that said the obstacle is democracy and we need to empower our great leader so that he can accomplish these great things without allowing the bad people to vote, then I would be nervous, particularly if there were a lot of people saying, yes, that is what we want, right? And that has happened in other countries. But I don't think that is at all where we are now. I think we have people advocating things that they won't be able to deliver, and they'll make us worse off. And I think, like to take the example of the Green New Deal, that what what I think is silly about the Green New Deal is the idea that, you can, you can have a very extreme environmental agenda, right? You, we will stop using fossil fuel, but that won't impoverish us, that will enrich us because these things should go together in the mind of the people who advocate this. Uh, we we uh, limit uh, carbon um, uh, use, but then somehow we're so inventive and clever with non-carbon-based fuel sources that we, we are enriched. And I think they only will need two years to try that out. And then they will be crushed at the next election, because people will experience this as, well, you were supposed to make us richer, and this is not making us richer. So I think that is silly, because it is promising that it will be painless to do an extreme thing. And people will just experience that, no, wait, it wasn't. You promised it would be painless. You promised it would actually be fun. It would make us feel good. And that, that hasn't happened. I don't believe the people who are advocating for this actually think it's so, I'm so convinced, it is so true, it is so urgent and necessary that we just cancel the next elections because we can't afford to lose an election because we have to implement this agenda. Um, If you ask me how do I know this, I mean, I don't know. It just seems to me they're not talking like, actual sinister fanatics. And I also think it really matters what the surrounding culture is. And I think up to this point, the surrounding culture in America is not supportive of that kind of true extremism that says we can't tolerate further elections, we can't tolerate open debate. I think that the country would really rebel at that. So I'm not worried about people who are selling snake oil? Because if people happen to buy it, it won't be for long.
1: Oh, well, that's very, uh, <laughs> that's very optimistic. One of the problems with, uh, with think- talking about the motives of candidates is that we are missing the rather more important point that people vote for them. If people vote for them, What their motivations are is, and I'm sure there are many different reasons for voting for someone you would consider silly and I would consider silly, but nonetheless, if the voters speak, then stuff happens, policies happen. And one of the problems with with socialist measures is that it's very difficult to then roll it back. And so, I, it's not—it's not a question of motives. Again, it's—I would think that those people who believe, who say, let's just say, say that um, universal healthcare and other, all these—all these, all these goodies—are um, going to bring panacea and uh, heaven on earth, or well, maybe not quite, but will be a good thing. Um, All of these people may be very well-intentioned, but unfortunately by the time, as you say, two years, maybe sometimes it's longer, then what? It is true, sometimes it is possible to roll back and uh, do over and think twice about what you had just done, but as history has indicated, it is hard. And then sometimes the evil that takes place is uh, is far worse than anybody had imagined or even intended. So that's my I, response to that. I don't
2: think you would disagree with this, but evil is a word that sometimes applies. Th- there yeah. really have been Um, movements in history and leaders and rulers in history have been evil. Um, We don't want to be too cavalier in throwing that term around to describe our fellow citizens in the United States.
1: Oh, no question, and I did not do so. I was talking about evil consequences. I don't know about evil people, um, obviously, there's some psychopaths and so forth. It's amazing, you know. Solzhenitsyn had said nobody really, and Plato, <laughs> Plato said nobody willingly does evil. I mean, that the point is that as long as as people are hurt, that that is evil. You see. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is a discussion for a longer time. Um, You do not want to provoke a philosopher to talk about evil. You should know better, Jeremy. So yeah, (laughs) I will not talk about evil. Uh, There were other questions.
0: All right, another question. Yes.
2: I just wanted if you can speak a little bit more about your distinction uh, about your remark about left and right uh, withering, uh, how can you see it uh, if you apply it into to the U.S. the Democrat and the Republican? if there is any any parallelism we could see? Just talk a little bit about more uh, about uh, this withering of left of right nowadays. Thanks.
1: Well, as you know, generally left means socialist and. Probe. <laughs> it depends who you ask. If you are, if you are in favor of socialism, then left is a good thing. If you are in favor of, uh, of capitalism, then left is a bad thing. Um, these are such a value-laden, such emotion-laden, I should say, concepts that they they're practically meaningless when right. Has so often come to be in the general media and the population so often uh, considered to be synonymous with racist, uh, when this is when in fact uh, racism is uh, is a is a terrible um, attitude that after all uh, spans spans ideologies. And so what I would say is that left um, includes or ought to include all uh, ideologies that presume to decide for others in, in their own good, right, in my perspective, I would say that or the opposite of that would be a devotion to individual freedom. but that is not how you usually hear it uh, used. It is all too often, oh, but just to be to be sure that uh, that the negative, the pejorative is added to the to right, it usually, is uh, used as ultra right, you see, just to make sure that you understand that right is bad, and therefore, and le- seldom, much, much more seldom do you hear ultra left being used, because the idea is, um, it seems to me, to uh, to use the concept of left in a positive, in a positive way, while um, the concept of the right is to be uh, castigated as pejorative, so that is one of the reasons why I find this uh, dichotomy to be very unhelpful yes sir or you 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 call on okay
3: <laughs> yeah i'm just uh, just curious why when when you said the the left you jumped immediately to socialism. Call them all socialists. Why don't you say, on the right, jump immediately to fascism?
1: Because fascism is a form of left-wing, uh, left-wing ideology. And that, that is something that I think, after you read my book, you'll understand why I do say that. And that is one of the great <laughs> myths of, con- of contemporary um, rhetoric. That fascism is on the right, socialism on the left, and I'm afraid. And you shake your head, uh, your head, and I can understand why you would, because this is, this is a difficult, um, a difficult narrative to dispel. But I'm afraid it's true. Yes. So,
0: would you say that Marine Le Pen was the left wing candidate for president of France?
1: I would have to say that uh, we. You see. Uh, <laughs> Marie Le Pen was a—I uh, would say—he was a, a left-wing candidate, absolutely. Who uh, who was very much against. Who had many of the uh, many ideas that disagreed with many other left-wing. Uh, people, you see, being an, uh presuming to know what is better for others does not imply that you have the same concept of, of what is best, but it does imply that you do not allow individuals to be free. So, yes, sir. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. There I go again. <laughs> I'm so used to. It.
4: Um, I just, going <laughs> the same topic, sorry, but, I mean, does, it always seems, appears to me when people do this left-right thing, that it is a failure to deter- to define our terms.
1: Absolutely. And
4: all too often, it comes to me as the sheep's clothing, you know, the wolf in the sheep's clothing tried to divide and conquer in the form of a demagoguery. Oh. And so it doesn't, you know, I try very hard to disarm quickly and say, let's agree to maybe put the far left or wherever you want to put it, totalitarianism, <laughs> and maybe let's put in the far right, no government at all, anarchy, and try to find something, you know. Um, and that I think is so. All this stuff is all too often uh, demagoguery. Don't you agree?
1: Absolutely. Oh my God, yes. I, I, <laughs> I, I just
2: probably you all know this, but. I, People have been fighting for all of recorded history and often giving political reasons why they disagree with the people they're fighting. And this idea that there's a spectrum of the left and the right and everything has a place by degrees of distance from the left or closeness to the right. Um, You know, this was made up in the late 18th century and maybe it made sense in the context of the French Revolution, that the right was sympathetic to the king and to the church and to the aristocracy, and the left wanted to abolish all those things in the name of equality, but how many political fights have we had in the last century which turned on people's feelings about monarchy How many political fights have we had in the last century that turned on people's opinions about the established religion? Not as a metaphor, but as the actual, it must be the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. I mean, that is not what people have been fighting about. And aristocracy, the privileges of the nobility, that is just gone. That doesn't mean anything to anyone today, except as a metaphor, and you have to be rather learned to invoke it, or or kind of fussy, you know, pedantic to invoke that as a metaphor. So um, I think this is not at all a very useful way of formulating, like, what are people arguing about? They're arguing about a whole lot of things, and I just say it's true in America that sometimes we are arguing about... Uh, Big government versus more freedom. So that's a good fight and that's a good argument. But even there, um, sometimes uh, what we think of as left and right switch sides on a particular issue. Uh, My wife and our neighbors are very upset about homeless people camping in our neighborhood. And DC, the local government, is saying, like, oh, well, they have the right. I'm going to let them. I mean, oh, we don't want to, blah, blah, blah. And the people who are championing the idea that you have the right to camp out across the street from someone's apartment building because you don't have a home, uh, those people think that they are in favor of freedom. And the people who are against them think, not that kind of freedom. Um, so we've kind of switched sides there. And I think you could explain this and it wouldn't be that surprising and everyone kind of like, oh yeah, the left would say that and oh yeah, the right would say this. But it's not even true that left and right in America now is simply about big government versus freedom. Um, So uh, yes, I think this is mostly annoying and demagogic, and we would be better off saying some people are really advocating something which is actually totalitarian, which is actually a huge amount of coercion in a brutal way, and we should recoil from them. And other people are saying, let's have the Federal Trade Commission be even more energetic in its uh, antitrust policy and those people are probably wrong but I mean you shouldn't react to them as if they're advocating something totalitarian
3: right here I want to ask you something um, about uh, this speech that uh, I'm in both of you to uh, this speech that William Barr just gave to the uh, at the University of Notre Dame you probably heard about it and he was saying that uh, they in order for societies to maintain the order which we have had in this country for a long time, that you really do need mostly. a... Mostly. Yeah, uh, yeah, mostly, yeah. Um, you really do need a transcendent type of approach where the morality would come from something higher than human beings and that if it doesn't come from human beings, then we can't agree on it. And if we make up our own morality, we're going to have moralities of, of uh, different kinds of moralities coming from different kinds of people, and everybody thinks they're right. So if we lose this religious uh, source so to speak, uh, that eventually ethics that we've practiced in this country will, that Christian, Judeo-Christian-based ethics will eventually wither and we become more confused. And as a society, we won't function as well. And it's the difference between, I know there's such a thing as bad religion, but there's also such a thing as good religion. The 10 commandments are pretty damn good. Uh, and I'm wondering what your opinion is as to this William Barr idea and whether it is going to be n- necessary for people to go back to that notion. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. The thing is, is you have to believe it. And, and, okay. And so forth.
1: This is where I uh, <clears throat> invoke the U.S. Constitution. And uh, the genius of the founders was to understand that ultimately, uh, the Constitution, and, and I should go back a little further, and of course the Declaration. In the Declaration, in which is enshrined in the Constitution, what we have is the acknowledgement that all men are created equal, and so long as we believe that, and it is a belief. I mean, um, my husband is writing a fabulous book right now demonstrating how this is rational, and it is rational to believe this to be true. But uh, for a lot of people, uh, this this un, uh, universal truth is rooted in in religious belief, I could see how that would be entirely appropriate. And we have to absolutely believe that. All men are created equal. And then the Constitution, in addition, provides the the, the structure that allows for the ideas of the Declaration to be implemented. Now, the U.S. Constitution, which is mercifully brief, has been uh, sorely neglected in the United States itself. Was the Constitution a utopian document? It did not tell us where to go or how to get there, but it's about as close to describing how humans can live together, work together, and promote the natural system of liberty, which is what Adam Smith had in mind. I think uh, there's a whole chapter about that, about what (laughs) the right means, if you want to call it that. And I I do think it's interesting that Hayek as well as Friedman um, had trouble describing themselves. In fact, they didn't really want to describe themselves as conservatives. I have been very uneasy, to be honest, with, uh, with the concept of conservatism. I'm sorry, Mustafa, you can't see me, can you? <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, conservatism is sort uh, conserving what, you know? Uh, Liberalism, I like it. I mean, classical liberalism, I'm comfortable with that. But liberalism is another one of these words that went out the window. I mean, you know, (laughs) writing this book was really hard because every word you use has baggage. And so one of the things I wanted to do, and used a whole bunch of, well, 1,024 footnotes It was to try to explain what I was really saying beyond the rhetoric, and it is not an easy thing to do. So I am afraid I answered more than your question. But uh, Jeremy, undoubtedly, I I, I, I just want to say I
2: I didn't get to read the speech, but I read about it, and I, I thought he was making a serious and important point and I think you're right to raise the question, and I think it's a very, very fundamental question. I'm probably more conservative than you are about this. Um, It isn't just that the American founders uh, put in provisions about freedom of religion. The the Declaration of Independence starts with uh, all men are created equal endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So this is, I think this is quite fundamental. It's that uh, it's not a matter of human consent whether people have these fundamental rights. And if you say, oh yeah, these rights are fundamental, but it's nothing to do with any religious belief. It could just be demonstrated. I say good luck, Roger, I wish you well. Um, I don't know how persuasive that is going to be to most people. And I think um, quite a lot of our, so religious, let's call it um, religious, uh, I'm looking for another word than enthusiasm. Religious affiliation, kind of respect for religion has, has, gone in waves throughout American history. We used to have these great awakenings in the 18th century and the early 19th century, these moments of revival. Um, There was a considerable religious revival after the Second World War, and a big part of it was recoiling from really horrible things that happened in other parts of the world. And people thought, you know, that's, I, I, don't have so much confidence anymore in human goodness. I don't have so much confidence anymore in human reason. I don't have so much confidence anymore in uh, the enlightenment. We just like figure it out and it's obvious. So people like went back to religious roots of our culture. And I think that was entirely understandable and proper. And I think we are likely to see another round of that as people feel more rattled. The least you can say is that um, how people figure out what they want and what they can tolerate depends on something more than just how they feel at that moment. There's some background of beliefs that they hold in a serious way and So you didn't wanna get into evil, probably you don't wanna get into the metaphysics of what do we mean by religion, or what do we mean by revelation, or what do we mean by spiritual, but I think it is hard to have core beliefs that are just, uh, I know that someone made it up, but it appealed to me. You're talking about a grounding that you take to be capturing something about the world is this way, the world was created this way, this is something that, that, is true even if most people say it isn't. I want to mention one other thing that I thought was really important in what Barr said, which is uh, we are seeing the flip side of this, which is people who don't like religious teachings saying, um, you, 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 you've got to stop talking that way. So um, I understand in the last few Democratic debates, there have been candidates saying if you don't endorse same sex marriage, you should lose your tax exemption. And I sort of understand why they're saying that, because there is this Supreme Court decision from the 1970s saying, if you um, support racial discrimination, you as a religious school shouldn't have a tax exemption, which I think was very wrong of them to have said in the 1970s. But it's even worse to compound this by saying, every other thing that becomes a a, a matter of passionate current belief, you have to say, well, then you can't be a church, or you can't have a religious tax exemption. And we are at the edge of that now, right? People Mm -hmm. saying, running for president, saying, if you elect me, Mm -hmm. I'll make sure that all religious institutions toe the line and say what a good liberal should say. And I think that can't be liberalism. I mean, if that's liberalism, that's why I'm a conservative. But in any case, we should all be very wary about having the state openly say, Religion is gonna be the teachings that the state approves because the state is here to make sure that people are taught the right way. That is really a very sinister, now I use the word sinister. That to me seems not silly, but sinister.
0: All right, I think that's a good colloquy on which to end. I want to invite you all to join us next door for lunch and also you can buy a book. And if you're looking for a restroom, that would be just toward the front of the building. And let's have a round of applause for our two (laughs) participants.